Welcome to Tomorrow's World. James Hilton's 1933 novel, Lost Horizon, describes a mythical Himalayan valley known as Shangri-La. The people who live there age very slowly and live to very great ages. They are also described as living in harmony without strife and conflict. The name Shangri-La has since become synonymous with paradise, and places of rest and recreation such as hotel resorts have been named after it. Peace, harmony, and long life have been sought for by man from earliest times, but somehow these elude us. Why? Is true peace and harmony possible? And what about long life? If so, why has man failed to achieve these things? John Lennon imagined such a place in the lines of this famous song. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. While Lenin imagines a world without possessions, at the time of his death, his net worth has been variously estimated, but clearly stood in the hundreds of millions of US dollars. And while he imagined living life in peace, his personal life could hardly be described as harmonious. But most troubling about Imagine is his reference to no religion. Now it is true that religion has been a source of war down through the ages, but what follows no religion is no God. So the question is, can there be a brotherhood of man and a harmonious society without God? Don't go away. I'll be back in a moment to answer that question. Welcome again to Tomorrow's World. On today's program, I'm going to discuss whether it is possible to have a truly harmonious society without God. The notion that there can be peace and harmony apart from a supreme moral authority began to take hold several centuries ago among Western intellectuals. Highly regarded English author Paul Johnson explains in his book, Intellectuals, that a fundamental change took root among the intellectuals of the recent past. 
With the decline of religious moral authority during the 18th century, a new kind of secular intellectual rose up to fill the void and capture the minds of men. These intellectuals proclaimed their godless religion through the arts, literature, education, and public speaking. And they did so with the zeal and authority of the most enthusiastic preacher and pontiff. It was as if it was their duty to transform human nature to their way of thinking. Johnson writes, The collective wisdom of the past, the legacy of tradition, the prescriptive codes of ancestral experience existed to be selectively followed or wholly rejected entirely as his own good sense might decide. For the first time in human history, and with growing confidence and audacity, men arose to assert that they could diagnose the ills of society and cure them with their own unaided intellects. They were not servants and interpreters of the gods, but substitutes. Who is Paul Johnson referring to? None other than the likes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Sigmund Freud, Henrik Ibsen, Bertrand Russell, Shelley, Tolstoy, and Hemingway. They conceived of a utopian promised land apart from the Creator and have helped to create a world lacking direction and purpose. These men and others like them are the men whose ideas have molded modern thought and sown the seeds of today's bitter fruits such as divorce and the breakup of families, drug and alcohol abuse, depression, and suicide. Building on the foundation of 18th and 19th century intellectuals, Former rabbi Dr. Felix Adler founded the American Ethical Union in 1889. In his insightful book, Persecution, How Liberals Are Waging War Against Christianity, David Limbaugh explains how there has been a deliberate assault on God, principally Christianity. The American Ethical Union was a seedbed for what would become secular humanism a philosophy that teaches that God does not exist and that man is perfectible, self-sufficient, and the measure of all things. Charles F. Potter, another former clergyman, founded the first humanist society. In 1930, he published Humanism, a New Religion. And in it, he made the following open admission about the role formal education should have in transforming the way that people think. Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism, and every American public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools, meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children, do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? You've likely come home some evening and turned on your television only to catch the last few minutes of a feature-length movie. You have no idea how it began, what was the storyline, and how the plot progressed. In the same way, we came into this world, and unless we diligently study history on many different levels, we are only viewing the latest few minutes of a much longer story. We are where we are, but we have little understanding of why we are where we are and how different life may have been at an earlier time. For us, everything is normal. 
This is why so few really understand what is known as secular humanism, even though they are living by its tenets. The problem is that most of us were not yet born when that part of the movie was shown. But it has had a profound effect on the lives of every single person watching this program and has a lot to do with the reason for so much depression, substance abuse, suicide, and relationship failures in our world. It is well known that American culture has spread around the world through movies, magazines, and music, and is embraced in much of our modern and postmodern world. But few question its philosophical underpinnings. Where did they come from? Educator John Dewey was among the signatories of this document that rejected traditional Christian beliefs and endorsed as an alternative those of naturalism, materialism, rationalism, and socialism. The Humanist Manifesto expressed the humanist goal, quote, to evaluate, transform, control, and direct all institutions and organizations by its own value system, end of quote. As one writer had noted, the humanist stated purpose was to effect a cultural revolution by substituting humanism for Christianity as a cultural foundation of America. Whether it was through the efforts of organized humanists or whether humanism was merely a symptom of 18th and 19th century thought coming of age in the 20th century is something that could be debated. It is probably a bit of both. But what is evident to any rational observer is that many of the philosophies and religious tenets of humanism are firmly rooted as the foundation of modern Western education, and they affect the thinking of educators, the media, politicians, judges, and the masses who gullibly parrot back the mantras of humanism. John Dewey's books were practically mandatory reading in teacher training colleges, making humanism the mainstream philosophy of public education. Humanism not posing as a traditional religion could enforce its own values under the guise of neutrality and without much scrutiny. Its precepts have come to inform the entire public school curriculum. For at least the last half century, Western children have been bottle-fed by the milk of humanist philosophy, not realizing it for what it is. It comes in the guise of neutrality. It masquerades as being objective, fair, and unbiased. Yet it is biased in favor of unchristian values. It paints religion as all the things it tries not to be seen as. We must now ask, what have been the results, and what are its fruits? A biblical proverb tells us, like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. Yes, there is a cause for every effect, and any truly honest and objective observer has to admit that too many of today's relationships between men and women are cursed. Something is terribly wrong with our way of life. Love connections, marriage is made in heaven, and soulmates are crashing all around us at an alarming rate so much so that it all seems so normal. Hong Kong, for example, has a 41% divorce rate and is only slightly behind the United States and Korea. 
China's divorce rate is climbing at an alarming rate, as it too drinks in of the philosophy of humanism. God's warning to everyone is, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. The problem with modern relationships is that we are reaping exactly what we have sown. We are sowing bad seeds that were genetically designed by intellectuals of the 18th and 19th centuries and the secular humanists of the 20th century. And we are now reaping the crop that those seeds naturally produce. We don't like the crop, but we refuse to recognize the cause of that diseased crop. Those who refuse to accept that there is a higher standard than the human mind are blinded to the fact that you can't defy the author of marriage in building lasting relationships and expect them to succeed. The intellectuals of the last three centuries have cast aside revealed knowledge. In their hatred of their maker's ways, they have suppressed the truth and constructed human culture to their own liking. They have attempted to free mankind from what they viewed as sexual restraint and repression. They have rewritten the roles of men and women. Ironically, in the name of science, they have ignored their own vaunted principles by refusing to evaluate the evidence and see that their experiment has failed. According to the Humanist Manifesto, knowledge of the world is derived by observation, experimentation, and rational analysis. Humanists find that science is the best method for determining this knowledge, as well as solving problems and developing beneficial technologies. We also recognize the value of new departures in thought, the arts, and inner experience, each subject to analysis by critical intelligence. How long must they observe failure, evaluate failure, and experience failure to realize their foundation is flawed, that it has failed? This suppression of truth and the resultant failure of human reason, as it exalts itself against God, was foretold millennia ago in the pages of the Bible. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The politically correct crowd, the true foot soldiers of secular humanism, suppress or hold back the truth. Through intimidation, they cause the weak to cower from expressing an opinion that diverges from their own. Anyone who has a sincere disagreement with them is labeled as a hate monger or somehow phobic. This is nothing less than dishonest intimidation, the kind that would make Hitler's brown shirts envious. But the questions remain. 
Can there be a truly harmonious society apart from God? Can you have morality without a supreme authority who defines right from wrong? One of the consequences of secular humanism is a lack of any moral authority other than the self. After all, if there is no God, who decides what is moral and what is not? Is morality something on which we can all vote? Are the majority always right and the minority always wrong? In 1989, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen published a treatise titled After the Ball. The subtitle was How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. In it, they laid out a well-conceived plan on how to sell the idea of homosexuality to the American public, and if to America, to the world. What is surprising is how strongly they condemn what is known as the homosexual lifestyle. Oh, and while we're at it, we the authors are every bit as guilty of a lot of the nastiness we describe as our other gays. This makes us not less qualified to inveigh against such evils, but, if anything, even more so. Yet at the same time, these authors appeal to a higher morality. Finally, don't be alienated by our implicit assumption of a definite right and wrong. We think there is such a morality. But even if you don't, we can and do appeal to you still on the grounds that presupposing and obeying a moral code is an act of enlightened self-interest. And then they quote the French philosopher Voltaire, If there were no God, it would be necessary to invent Him. The point being, there has to be a code of conduct whereby man may conduct his affairs. Problems arise that lead to disaster when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. This is the overriding lesson of the biblical book of Judges. After describing one of the most bloody and worst times in Israel's history, the book ends with this simple statement. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Left a man, who decides what is right and what is wrong? Voltaire's point, and that of Madsen and Kirk, is that there must be a higher moral code by which people live. But apart from God, who has the authority to lay down such a code? Even of those who don't throw in the moral towel altogether, many slip down the sleazy slope into situational ethics, that system in which actions are judged not against absolute moral standards, but in terms of the unique aspects of the particular situation in which the actor finds himself. And what are the fruits of rejecting the moral code laid down by the God of the Bible? What kind of relationships have men been able to form apart from its precepts? Let's have Madsen and Kirk answer the question for us. While they support the unbiblical concept of same-sex marriage, they address the problem of infidelity in these unions honestly. Yes, that wayward impulse is as inevitable in man-to-man affairs as in man-to-woman. Only for gays it starts itching faster. Surely the cheating ratio of married gay males, given enough time, approaches 100%. 
Then, too, the gay community has never had any tradition of faithfulness. After explaining in page after page real problems, challenges, and struggles found in the homosexual community, they make this amazing admission. In short, the gay lifestyle, if such a chaos can, after all, legitimately be called a lifestyle, just doesn't work. What an amazing admission. Yet when it comes to immoral behavior that is not working, heterosexuals who have bought into secular humanism are not faring very well. There too we find unfaithfulness and betrayal. And it even begins before marriage in a world guided by humanistic principles that promote a situation ethics approach to relationships. Remember, humanism is an attempt to define morality based solely on human reason apart from God. And the Bible rightfully uncovers the motives behind man's rejection of divine authority. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Highly regarded English author and humanist Aldous Huxley admitted this to be true in his book Ends and Means. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Not only does it confirm the Bible's declaration that the rejection of God is closely tied to the casting off of all sexual restraint, but it also demonstrates how impossible it is to gain a consensus on what is moral and what is not. Even homosexual advocates Madsen and Kirk believe that there must be some restraint on sexual behavior, but clearly there is no agreement. And this confirms the earlier aphorism written by Voltaire, if there were no God, it would be necessary to invent him. We are told in the Bible that the laws of God were given to mankind for our good. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. The Bible tells us that the mind of man is hostile to God's law. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now if mankind is hostile to the laws that are claimed to come from a higher authority, what hope is there that men can agree on a moral code created by other men? Can men truly come up with a better code than the one already given? When asked by a lawyer which was the great commandment in the law, Christ replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
These two great commandments can be further defined by the Ten Commandments, the first four of which teach us how to show respect and love toward our Creator. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images or idols. You shall not take my name lightly or in vain. Remember the seventh day of each week and set it aside for rest and worship. And the last six of which teach us how to show outgoing concern for our neighbor. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. If men cannot accept these simple principles given to us by our Creator, how can we ever expect that man will somehow construct a code of conduct that will lead to a harmonious Shangri-La world? What do we have to show for man's attempt to create morality without God? Secular humanism's greatest legacy is not the example of its leaders or even its ideas. It is its lack of purpose beyond the immediate gratification of the self. The English poet Shelley wrote, Poetry and the principle of self, of which money is the visible incarnation, are the god and the mammon of the world. With no purpose to inspire man to higher behavior, all that is left behind is live for today and live for the self. And this is the common assumption in modern and postmodern culture. And with this as the common assumption, it is impossible for man to agree on a common moral code. Only God Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, has the authority to define moral values. Is it any wonder when people have no sense of higher purpose that we find our societies in such a dysfunctional state? Is it any wonder why we see so much divorce, greed, selfish behavior, rudeness, and crassness in our present culture? To learn more about God's great moral code that He gave us for our good, check out our website that will be shown momentarily. And be sure to come back next week at this same time and this same station to learn more about God and His glorious kingdom in tomorrow's world. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program has been produced by the Living Church of God.